When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you know what I use to record these podcasts? It's Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or a computer. It's all really, really easy. It's all really intuitive. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast. Back on the Kent Sterling Show, CBS Sports 1430 with the great Donnie Walsh. Uh, I've been an admirer for a long time for a variety of reasons. Um, One is the way you, from the top to bottom in the 90s, built a culture where everybody was on board, not just the players, not the coaches, just the coaches, but everybody in the building. How, How do you go about building a culture, and how important is it for a franchise like the Pacers? Well, I think it's very important for every franchise, and I think you're seeing it more and more in the NBA now. You know, I think the days of trying to build an all-star team and thinking you're going to win the NBA championship, that doesn't work. Now, people will take umbrage at that because of the fact that you're getting two or three great players coming together to win a championship in specific franchises. And it works because they're culture people. The people that have been doing that or, you know, like Kevin Durant and guys like that are the kind of guys that bring a good culture. So it it, it, it keeps it going. It, you know, it doesn't disrupt it. And I do think it's important because what you, you know, you can't forget that, number one, with the team itself, it is a team game. It is not an individual game. So the closer, the more bonded, the more unified you are as to you know, the way you're going to conduct yourself on and off the court becomes extremely important in how you play on the court. And if you like each other, which our team last year, I mean, they liked each other from day one. uh, And they went by whatever Nate said, you know, at the same time. When you get a team that does that, they can do what our team did last year, and that is prove most of the people that are prognosticators wrong and become a much better team than what it looks like on paper. Now, if you get, you know, I think this year we've added some talent, and and we'll have the we're going to try to have the same kind of culture, and I think we will. And if you have that with a full team of guys now, and it's somewhat like it was last year, then we're going to be a lot better than what people think this year as well. 
As you look at guys, like I'll watch you and Larry and Kevin and Chad and Peter and everybody watch like the pre-draft workout and stuff like that. And so you're, you're deciding who you're going to invite to be a part of the culture. You've got to look at physical characteristics, but do you look behaviorally too? And as you look at those, what do you look at first? Well, I think you look at their game to see, you know, if they're at a certain level to be um, contributing NBA players at the very least. Uh, and then you look at how you think they'll fit in. You know, a lot of it's got to do with position, how many players are in that position, um, what's going to happen if there are two or three guys ahead of this player, can you move them to another position, those kind of things. But then it's just, is he out there for the right reasons? In other words, is he trying to help you win the game? Not worrying about his own stats, that kind of thing, where you know he can keep his own contract going. And sometimes it's not a, a, a doesn't you shouldn't impute that the player is being selfish. I mean, every player out there, every person in this franchise wants to keep their job here. And so they're going to do whatever they have to. But what you have to do is emphasize to the players the most important thing is that you play a team game. And if you don't do that, then your talent level won't mean much. Let's talk about you for a minute. I, I know you went to North Carolina and you played for Frank McGuire and, and then you played, I think, your senior year for Dean. And then you went to law school. I'm interested in how, if if at all, how did law school help prepare you to do what you've done in, in college basketball first and then in the NBA? Well, you know, that, that I, I've had to answer that question a lot because, um, you know, people find it unusual that I have this combination of being involved in basketball my entire life, but having a law degree, and how did that contribute to uh, And I, I really believe that my high school education and my law school education really added to my ability to be, to both coach in the NBA and to uh, be a, a front office person in the NBA because it basically does something to your mind. Those, the way those, my high school taught in a kind of ratio studiorum way, you know, where uh, there's a lot of question and answers. And law school is that. That's, what, that's the way they present law to law students. And what that does is that trains your mind to be looking for the most important issues in any fact situation. And I, that, I found that really helped me that I could get through all the haze that's there and get right to the issue. And that I attribute to my high school and my and college as well. College was more like trying to get the grades, but law school was the same thing because the way they're taught more than anything else. Did that, did that help you in some way? Like when you became the general manager here at the Pacers, it took a while to get things ramped up, right? And you were very patient. You drafted guys, a guy like Rick Smith, who needed some time to develop. Antonio needed some time to develop, so he went to Europe, and he did. And Dale, same thing uh, with development. The patience that was required for you, not only like managing down, in managing fan expectations, but managing up to Herb and Mel, did were you able to explain it kind of at a higher level, or was it easier to be patient because of your background? 
I don't know. It, it, it was never easy to be patient because, uh, you know, you, you don't ever want to lose. So if, if that requires losing, I wasn't into that. Um, but you had to be realistic because back when I first started, there was no free agency. Right. In other words, you could either trade for a player or draft a player. Everyone else, when their contract ended, was a restricted free agent, which meant that you could put a bid on on the player, but the other home team could match it. And they almost always did. And back then, there wasn't caps like there are today, so you didn't have the same situation. So you really had to make use of the draft to improve the team now. When I came in here, we had not made – well, we made the playoffs, I think, once in 10 years mm-hmm. and and didn't win a game in the playoffs. Um, so we had to really build a structure that you know was good enough to become a playoff team and then to go from there to becoming better than a playoff team. And when you're dealing with younger players, at some point they're going to get good enough to make the playoffs. But once you get in the playoffs, it's a whole different ball game. And so they have to go through their learning experience again in the playoffs. And that proved true with both the teams I had with Reggie and Rick and those guys and every other team to a degree. It seemed like that team toward the end of the uh, 90s and into 2000, that team had a great critical mix of youth and, and veteran guys like Sam and like Mully. Who, who came in and they knew their jobs and they could do them at a high level. They just couldn't do them for 38 minutes anymore. And it seemed like a team that somehow, some way could win an NBA title. And then the decision was made to pivot from that group and get young again. How difficult was that? Well, I think it was more difficult in your mind than anything else because the first team we had was such a great team to have. I mean, we had every position covered. You know, we basically had great coaching during that period with uh, Larry Brown. Oh, I could go all the way back to Jack Ramsey and the coaches we had until we got uh, Larry Brown came in. And he really took us from being a playoff team to in the uh, Eastern Finals in two years in a row. So he made the big jump with that. And then I knew the team was ready. So I knew that Larry Bird, who hadn't coached, that I knew that that would be the kind of team he could have a gigantic impact on. Larry was a very, very bright basketball guy. He knew that since he hadn't coached in the NBA, it would be very helpful to him to have really two good assistants. We had Dick Carter, who was probably the best defensive coach uh, during his time in the NBA, and Rick Carlisle were our two assistant coaches. So, you know, that trio really, I thought, all I know is that during that time when we went on the road, I never thought we'd lose. In other words, I always, and you know, you go on the road in the NBA, you're, you're, you're hoping to win. But with that team and with the Larry and those coaches, I, I would be surprised if we didn't win the game. You know, you mentioned Larry Brown. I know you've known him forever and a really interesting guy and probably as good a basketball tactician as there's ever been. And then Larry Larry Bird, kind of a different sort of guy. Uh, Obviously, he was really, really good at what he did, but I think that he was kind of that different coach. How, how, How important was it from that pivot from Larry Bird or Larry Brown to Larry Bird 
to bring somebody different with a new energy and because Larry Brown kind of wears guys down. Well, he does. I mean, he is, uh, you know, he's at you every single day in practice. You never get good enough. You know, you're on the all-star team and he's still telling you, you got to do this, you got to do that. You're not good enough. And I, I think that wears on players. Um, so yeah, you're right. I think that, and Larry knows that after a certain amount of time, he's going to wear out, which is why he's always moving. Um, but Larry Bird, he did nothing but add to the players because by the time he got them, he wasn't trying to teach them anything. They already knew the the basics. What he wanted to do was teach them how to win at the, at the high level. And, you know, he was convincing in that because all these players had played against Larry, so they knew what a great player he was. But they also found out he's a great basketball mind. And I thought he did a great job with this team because we had expectations. Yeah. And he met every expectation, except we didn't win the championship. But he got us right at it every year. Talking to Donnie Walsh. Uh, when you consultant, executive consultant, uh, okay, consultant, you, you, you're the guy that people talk to when they need answers. That's what a consultant does. You've been here since 84, 82, 84, 83, 84. Um, and, and now when you look, when you look at this team that you've got, let, let's go back to culture for a minute. Cause I'm fascinated by building culture and, and the way it always seemed when you ran stuff around here. When I was around things like the golf outing, it seemed like everybody from top to bottom, exceptionally happy, and nobody ever leaves here once they're here. I mean, Karen Atkinson has been here forever. Terry Tiernan, been here forever. Fusen, obviously, forever. What's the key to finding the right person to feed the culture, not on the court necessarily, but off the court in the administrative kind of world? What, and how important is that to what goes on on the court? I think it's very important for the front office, the coaching staff, uh, the basketball operations people, the business people, all to get along together and to realize there's only one thing we're after, and that is to make the franchise successful because they have different, you know, um, like they're trying to get concerts, they're trying to get other things besides basketball. When I was running the, the team, I always knew that basketball at that time was a big driver. In other words, for the company, we had to be good in order for us to sell season tickets. And, you know, a large part of our income in those days was that. Now we're getting help from other areas. So, you know, that they have to devote their attention to other things. And so the people over here, Kevin and them, we've got the basketball and we know we have to be good in order to be, you know, at, at a certain level uh, financially. And um, that has worked out. A lot of it had to do with the uh, new contract the NBA got in um, television, yeah. which, you know, which everybody shares. In. And that certainly helped us. So that's the reason you see this building. And, you know, uh, we were able to get enough money in, in, to afford some things. that puts us where we were, actually, which is at the top of the league as far as the way we deal with our team, the way we deal with our fans, all of that, I think has been first class here for a long time. And, you know, that's to the credit of the people that are running it right now, Rick and and uh, Kevin uh, Pritchard. Um, and all Larry and I are doing are being here in case there's some issue comes up that they haven't dealt with. But they're, they're fast outgrowing that, so I don't know how long I'll be here. <laughs> 
Let's talk about to have a resource like you sitting down the hall. I can't even imagine how valuable that is. When when you watch guys come in for a pre-draft workout, and we talked about it a little bit, how long does it take you? Is it like a matter of a second to look at a guy and say, okay, he's NBA worthy, he's not NBA worthy? How long does it take? That part's probably easier because, you know, I've seen so many players. I know what the players have to have. So, you know, I can watch them play for I don't do it because you can make mistakes doing that. Uh, you know, you think, well, that guy can't make it because he can't do this. But then you find out that he's got a kind of game that can overcome that uh, because he's either, you know, a super hustler or something like that that isn't big enough to get rebounds, but he gets rebounds. Uh, they're just things that, that you can't miss on. Uh, but as far as I can pretty well tell what a guy's game is quickly and I think, you know, because we only have so many positions filled, and so we know, like, okay, we need this, we need that. And I I can tell pretty quickly whether there are players out there that I'm looking at that are candidates to take one of those positions that we think we have open. Is it tough for you, like on draft night or ramping up to the draft as people are talking, and maybe that doesn't happen at all, maybe you guys are all on the same page, I don't know. But somebody says something, I love this guy. And you know, you're like, no, 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 no. Is it tough to keep your mouth shut? Uh, well, for the majority of the time I was here, I was the one that had the ultimate decision. Right. I mean, now. Yeah. Well, now, no. Um, now I give my opinion before the draft. And one thing I know is that as the draft goes on, you've got to, I stated, and so has everyone else, stated to Kevin. Here's the order of the draft. You know, these are the guys you should be looking at. But when it gets there, there could be a change. And the last thing that the guy who's going to make the decision needs is everybody yelling different names yeah. at him. So I never take part in that. Once the draft starts, Kevin makes a decision. You know, he's got guys around him that are kind of feeding him information that he, that he wants around him. And I'm just over on the side, and I, I try not to get involved in that. How critical is it with a team that operates like this? And in this team, it, they're a long way from being the team that like went to the Eastern Conference Finals against the Bulls in 98, which was maybe the most exciting conference finals I've ever seen. It was unbelievable. That game at Market Square when uh, Reggie hit the shot and then Jordan on the other end just rimmed out. That was, I've never heard a building that loud ever. Um, but it seems like there's that kind of likability on this team, the, this kind of singularity of purpose. And to bring in guys like Doug McDermott and Tyreek Evans, you know what they can do on the floor. How important is it for Kevin or you or Larry or Chad or whomever to sit down with those guys and make sure that they're a puzzle piece that fits this current group and they're not going to come in and be somehow selfish, like you said, or disruptive? Well, we feel pretty confident. We do, you know, we do a lot of research into that because their game, you can see their game. You know what their game right. is. So it's not a matter of are they good enough. You, you know you want them. So there's a lot of work trying to find out are they the kind of guys that will fit in with this team. And the answer came back yes on on these players. And just being here when, when they came in and, we're working out. I think that's the right answer. I think they will fit in. Um, Tyreek is an unusually good all-around player. I mean, he can kind of do what he wants out there. And I think the idea there is that when we got in the playoffs, 
when Victor would get the ball, particularly in the last five minutes, people were running at him from every part of the court. And it was hard for him to get a shot. Well, that's all prefigured by the uh, opposing team. Well, if you put a guy like Tyreek out there, now you've got another guy that can do that. Now they don't quite know how to attack it. So, I mean, how to uh, defend you. Talking to Donnie Walsh, it's uh, and a lot of people look at it as simply as Tyreek coming in and supplanting Lance, but it's different from that. And and Lance being a guy on the floor who wasn't going to knock down, he not knock down three point shooter. McDermott coming in and being a guy who can and spread the floor like Boyan, that's really important to open up the floor for a guy like Tyreek. Yeah, it is, and it's important. I think it, you know it's important to have shooting on the team and. We had pretty good shooting. A lot of it was young. So, you know, you're not going to be shooting the ball great when you're young, usually over the course of 82 games, because you haven't come up against the kind of defenses. But it'll all get better with the players we had last year. McDermott, I think, is, you know, what I call just a – he's a, a, a definite shooter. In other words, if he's open and he's got the shot, he's probably going to make it. Um, and there aren't a lot of players in the league like that. Um and he also moves well without the ball. So he's going to get himself open, even if he's not open on, let's say, help on Victor or help on one of our other players. So he's a perfect guy for this team. And he's six feet eight. That's the one thing that I think I started to look at after the players got here is that this team got bigger, all right? In other words, Tyreek is six feet six about 225, 230 pounds. Lance was like six feet four with a great body. All right, so Tyreek's even bigger than Lance. Um, Then you get to O'Quinn. We really didn't have a guy last year that could come off the bench at the two or the three who was six feet eight. You know, Bojan was a starter at six feet eight. Well, this kid's coming off the bench. All of a sudden, we're bigger. We were playing... Uh, Joseph or Collison at the two guard when we take Victor out. So, you know, he's a, he's a big addition too. Uh, and then Kyle Quinn, I always, I felt we needed uh, a shot blocker and they went out and got him. I mean, I think Kyle Quinn can, he's a good player, really good player. Talking to Donnie Walsh, consultant for the Indiana Pacers and the architect of the great Pacers team of the 1990s and beyond. Um, let me ask you about your experience with the Knicks. Here's what's interesting to me. When you became the general manager here, you had kind of the lay of the land. You knew what this place was because you'd been here. In New York, you went in cold and had to run stuff. You had already earned the respect of the people here when you got the job as GM. There, they knew who you were, but you had to go win them. How is that challenge different? Uh, well, if with the fans, it wasn't because yeah. I grew up there and the press knew me uh, and they treated me pretty well. I mean, you know, for New York press, it was pretty rough. Uh, and they were, you know, they, they're going to they're gonna challenge you and all. But I think, you know, I got along with the press and I tried to deal with them in the right way, which kind of hadn't been done before, uh, early, you know, the years before I got there. Um, so I think they, it ended up the press and the fans were great. Um, I enjoyed New York. I, I loved being back there because it was my hometown. gave me a chance to go back and kind of experience that. I knew I was going to leave there and come back here, 
I didn't know I was going to be back with the Pacers, but I knew I was going to come back and live here. So it was a good experience for me. The challenge was that we had to break the team up there yeah. because they were well over. They were double the cap when I got there. So I had to lose a lot of players and not take anything back the first couple of years. So I knew, and I told the people and the press, we're probably going to lose for two years, but then in the third year I'd like to see us make the playoffs. And so that's about the way it worked out. Then I left after the third year and came back here and didn't do anything here. Um, but they went on and had a good year that year with the same team that I left because Glenn Grumwald, who worked with me, he kind of filled in the blanks that that we still hadn't filled in. And they had a very good team. Then the following year, I joined the Pacers when Larry left for a year, and we met them in the second round, I think, mm -hmm. and we ended up knocking them out of the playoffs, which it was a really a, a tribute to our team because I thought they were a very good team that year. When did you, I mean, you're a really smart guy, so you go to Fordham Prep, right, in New York, and then UNC, and, and so, and you go to law school, and, and obviously you've got options, you know, intellectually to do some things. When did you decide that you loved basketball enough to make this your life's work? Well, I'd probably come to that fork in the road three times, four times maybe. And every single time I chose basketball. So after the third time I did, I thought, I think I just got accepted. I was, <laughs> you know, because I really would look into the law thing. Uh, but actually I had... Graduate, well, I was graduating from uh, law school at North Carolina. I was working with Dean uh, as a graduate assistant during that time. Um, but I had a job offer by Vice President Nixon, was on a big law firm in New York. And so I went up to see them. And I went around and you know met all the partners and met the ex-Vice President at that time. And, and when I was about to leave, they walked me through the law library. And what I saw there were all guys my age and, and women my age sitting at desks with books piled up over their head. And I just looked at it, and when I got to the elevator bank to leave, I went, I don't want to do this. And I went back, and I talked to Dean, and he hired me as an assistant. And then quickly after that, Frank McGuire called Dean and said, look, I lost my assistant, could I get Donnie? And I ended up down with Frank in South Carolina. And so I've had a couple of moments like that during my life, but I always chose basketball. And, and sometimes it was just a fortunate break I got. Um, when I was leaving South Carolina, because I just became uh, disillusioned with uh, college basketball at that point. When I was leaving there, I was going to go into law, and I really had you know, I took the bar exam for the first time 13 years after I graduated from law school. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go into law. I get a phone call from Larry Brown saying, hey, Donnie, you know, I'm out here in Denver. How'd you like to come out and be my assistant? And I mean, I didn't even think about it. I said, yeah, I'll come. <laughs> <laughs> but I told them when I got there, I said, look, I want to be a general manager. I don't want to be a coach. But, you know, I want to stay in the league, so yeah I'll, yeah, I'll do that. What is it about being a general manager that was the right fit for you instead of being a coach? I think a coach, I think the, uh, and, and this isn't 100%, but for me, anyhow, I thought my personality and my knowledge and my background 
was better suited to be in the front office than a coach. Because a coach is somebody who can lead you up over Porkchop Hill, you know what I mean? Right. That, that drives people and has that ability. And, and, and usually the great coaches, there's only one way you're going to play, the way they want you to play. With me, I saw ten ways that you could play. A lot of it had to do with my experiences with Larry Brown, Frank McGuire, and Dean Smith, because they had a gigantic. I had a gigantic view of the game. Sure. And so, um, I just felt I was suited better. That as a coach, you can't be like that. You've got to convince the team this is the only way we're going to play. With me, I could look at the talent and then say, well, what coach could do this? You know, what, what I saw and build the team that way. And so that's kind of why I thought I was better suited there. And do also I had a law degree, which at that time, there weren't many basketball people who had law degrees. So that helped. Do you enjoy, what do you enjoy more? Uh, like putting together the culture or or evaluating individuals? I mean, is it... I mean, everybody uses that grocery analogy. Do you like going to the store and, and picking out the ripe melon? Or or do you like taking all the groceries and seeing how they fit together? What's what's the best part for you? All of it. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Because I've done every job in the league on the basketball side. And then at some point, I was running the whole franchise. So, you know, I had to know all of marketing and all the other departments that we have here that make this a good franchise. And so that whole experience really, really shaped me as far as, you know, basically having to come up with a, a concept that of our culture, uh, who fit where in, in different places in the franchise, what areas you needed to improve, that kind of thing. Pacers consultant and the architect of, of a couple of really good iterations of the Indiana Pacers. Did, not winning a championship, is that one of those things that keeps you coming back? You know, no and yes. I mean, um, every year I come back, I'd like to see if we have a chance to win a championship. And since I came back here, we've had two years where we had a real legitimate chance mm-hmm. um, when we went to Eastern Conference Finals and played Miami. And it was similar to the way it went when I was here the first time. Uh, but I thought we were good enough to, to get into the finals and maybe to win it, you know, once we were there. Because once you get there, you know, then that, that brings you to a whole other level. Uh, so, but in between, that, right now I'm looking at a team that I think at some point will have the talent and the other elements to a team that will have a chance to win a championship. So, you know, it makes it exciting when you have something like that. Intellectually, you like to keep yourself stimulated. Intellectually, do you read a lot? I do. That's what I, I'm doing during the summer. I read everything, you know, that comes over my desk and try to see if there's any, if anything correlates to what we're doing right here, right now, to see if it could help. Then I send it on to other people. Books or just whatever you can find. I read a lot here, so I don't go home and read books. You know, I get tired of reading. The, um, the, there are so many books on management. There's, there, how much of, of your managerial prowess was developed personally 
as opposed to reading, you know, a million books about, you know, the immutable ways of motivating people or whatever? I don't think I did any of that. Well, I won't say any of it. You know, I didn't read a lot on that because I found it boring, to be honest. Um, Whereas I think there's, I've glanced at those things a lot. And it's always remarkable to me that they put in words what you might think is, you know, something you should know. But when you see it in words, there's a structure to it that I thought was good. And so I have used that kind of stuff before. But not to the extent that you were talking about, where I, it, it's my main thing. And I think if I went to school and learned management styles, probably would have helped me. Uh, but I just, you know, basically did it on my own bootstraps. Now I did have a law degree, which is tangential to corporations. In other words, you get a feel for what corporations should do, what they shouldn't do. So you have this overview of it, and then. When I was in Denver, I think I, I basically studied the budget because I did a lot of work with the assistant GM. And I got to know what an MBA budget was for. And I would say this, and I've said it to people in here. If you've got a budget line, it's important. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the way I structured the franchise. Once I had the budget there, then I knew what was really important and what people were going to, you know, it didn't depend how, how much money you had, but you're going to have to use this money in the right way. And that was kind of where I started with it. From a leadership perspective, who was kind of, was it a, a big recipe of mentors that you had, whether it was McGuire or Dean or, or anybody else? Or was there one guy that you were like, okay, this is how you lead people? Well, leading people, I think it was Dean and uh, Frank McGuire that taught me that. Because they were so different. Frank McGuire was just a magnetic guy. If he walked into a, a room where there were a thousand people, I mean, the second he walked in there, all thousand would know Frank McGuire was in the room. <laughs> you know, he just was like a light shone on him. And for young men, he was like, you know, he was like a leader that you looked at, and if he told you to do anything, you'd do it, just because of the strength of his personality. Dean came in as a very young man, and so he didn't rely on that at all. But he did things that you know, I, I hadn't seen a coach do before, maybe my high school coach, but he never cursed the whole time I was with him in North Carolina. I never heard him say a curse word. Um, he treated everybody exactly the same. He, he taught basketball with peer pressure, and that's I really learned how effective that can be because you'd be out there practicing and, you know, he'd show you what he wanted you to do and all that. And if you made a mistake, he would blow the whistle and say, okay, we're all going to run four sprints uh, because of what Donnie just did. And that meant the team is running. And the first time you run the sprint, you guys don't say, you make a mistake again, all of a sudden, everybody on the team is like, you better get this straight, you know, because they get sick of it. Uh, and so there, the way he did things, I thought, were very different from what Frank did. Frank just, by force of his personality, be a little bit like Bobby Knight in a way, because um, Bobby was like that plus a tactician. But uh, Frank was a tactician in a different way. He really understood the game. He really understood how to get five men to play together. 
There's so many different ways to lead guys, especially in basketball. And you mentioned Bob Knight, and so you've got Bob Knight and Dean Smith as kind of polar opposites behaviorally. Is there a right way to lead a basketball team, or is there just the way that each guy has within him to lead a basketball team? I think that I think that um, every coach has to use his strength in leading his team. He has to be authentic to the team. So it has to be his way of doing things. And and it's got to be real. Um, I think as far as right and wrong, I think that you, you, you as a coach can do the wrong thing. And you have to watch out for that. You know, you've got to be putting out the right basketball menu and the right life menu because that all adds into how good a team you're going to have. And you have to be a disciplinarian. Things that you think your team shouldn't be doing, if they do it, you've got to make it real clear that it's not going to go on. You know, it's interesting. The guys that you've hired uh, to coach this franchise, I'm going back like all the way into the early 90s and maybe even a little bit beyond. But all of those guys, to the extent I've known them, they're all really, really authentic guys. That That's a critical com- – like if you're not authentic, they always say – that it takes a lifetime to build trust and a minute, you know, to to corrupt it. Um, and if you're not authentic, there's no trust that can develop, right? No, that's right. And and the play, well, in the NBA, it becomes even more important because number one, you're dealing with men for the most part, and number two, you're dealing with guys who played a lot of basketball, have been around a lot of different people, and they they can see through you in a minute if you're not being authentic. And so I think it's really important. And we've had that. We've had, you know, Larry, no matter what, you you might think he's crazy. Larry Brown was the type of guy that when he coached you, it was a horror show. I mean, it just, it really, you know, the poor players, I used to sit and watch some of them start crying at the end of practice. And these are men. Um, But the funny thing about that is I heard a quote by, I think, Reggie, you know, in one of these 30-30 things where he said that, well, the thing that brought us together, we all hated Larry so much <laughs> that we became a great team. And that I, I know other coaches who did it that way. Uh, but then he said, and every player I've heard quoted as far as Larry Brown has said the same thing, boy, I hated playing for him, but he taught me more basketball than any coach I've ever had. That is the ultimate job, all right? I remember on WIBC, we had uh, Larry Brown, he did a coach's show, and uh, somebody asked him about Jalen Rose, and he he said, Jalen Rose doesn't have a clue, man. You know, I've never heard a a coach talk about a player like that in the media. Well, he was like that, and he he was rough on the team when he was coaching them. But, you know, I see him now, he... Larry's a guy that can't exist without basketball, so he's not coaching anywhere. I think he went to Italy, though, just recently. But in the last couple of years, he's been hanging around Villanova because <laughs> the coach lets right. him. And, you know, he, I can just see him. He's probably r- wanting to run out on the court. <laughs> and that coach is big enough that he, could, he can handle that, you know. If you had to put together a team, I'm not going to ask you, like, who's the good, I guess uh, um, Daryl Morey was talking about the difference between LeBron and Michael, and he said that LeBron, best that's ever played by a wide margin. But if you had to, like, put together a team to beat LeBron or put together a team to beat Michael, and you've 
tried to do both. Who would be the guy that you would rather put together a team to beat? You know, I don't do that. Uh, I've never done that. Won't do it. I tried to be sneaky. I tried to like come in through the back door. You know, I've thought about this a lot because I've looked at it a lot, and I've seen a lot of great players. I've been doing this for 50 years, if you count college. And what I say is this. The players you're trying to compare were the best players of their generation. But it's impossible to go and say Michael and LeBron. The fact is they're the best there is. And to try to, in your own mind, come up with who's better and why he's better and all that is an act in folly, I think. Yeah. I really do. I, I, I don't get that at all. Why you get some satisfaction out of thinking, well, LeBron is better than Michael. You know, if you were in Michael's generation yourself, you probably want to stick up for Michael, and if you're in LeBron's... Right. You know, well, I've been in both their generations. Right. And I can tell you that my main goal was to try to beat Michael Jordan, and I couldn't do it. My main goal was to beat Larry Bird, and I couldn't do it. I was so happy when he left Boston. <laughs> I was, because we just couldn't beat him. And I would say the same thing about LeBron. And in all the three guys I just mentioned, who I think are three of the greatest players ever to play, um, they had a genuine approach to the public that was perfect, perfect. I never heard Michael say anything on television. I saw him for his whole career and saw him on TV a lot. He never made one mistake publicly that I ever saw him make. And I believe LeBron is doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's doing great things. So when I look at, and Larry's the same way, when you look at those kind of guys, they're just so well-rounded as human beings, that they're easy to tell. I've never told my sons to emulate a basketball player, but it would be easy for me to tell them to emulate those three guys. All three of those guys, and when you mentioned Larry, I thought of him and the attitude that he brought to the court and kind of a killer attitude with Michael, especially as he got older. As you evaluate young guys, do you look like they're nice guys? And you think, ooh, he's a little bit too nice. You know, he's got to get a little nasty in him. Is nasty important in basketball? Yes. Um, it's, not even, it's not even nasty in a way. It's that you're talking about three guys who had such great, well, you know, different elements. Like Michael was an unbelievable athlete as well as being a great basketball player. Larry was like a living dictionary on the game on how he could do things and a great basketball player. And the same thing with LeBron. is like this unusual-sized guy who should be a power forward, but that can play point guard, has all the skills in the world. But they all get down to one thing. They can impose their will on the game in five different ways, and they know how to do it at the right time all the time. Let me ask you about Isaiah Thomas, because I, I like to talk to, I like Isaiah Thomas. And when I talk to people he played with at IU, you get a very specific picture of Isaiah as a really good teammate and a good dude. You talk to other people who've come across him in life and they're, they're not so sure. What's your perspective? And you, you worked with him. What's your perspective on Isaiah Thomas as a competitor, coach, guy? 
I really liked Isaiah. And that sounds strange because I let him go mm -hmm. both places. But it had nothing to do with him. It had more to do with the situation that the team was in. And, 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 and there comes a time when you think, I don't know if it's going to work anymore. But as far as a person, I liked Isaiah a great deal. I spent a lot of time with him. He, is, he was not only a great player, he really knows the game of basketball. And, he, and he's got such a great mind that he, he knows it in some areas that really make you think. I mean, he, he can provoke thought in you because he hits an area that you hadn't thought about. And that's unusual when, you know, for me because I've been in it so long, but he could do that. And I thought he did a good job in uh, here, for sure. He brought us to the playoffs all three years. Mm -hmm. You know, after we were a great team, he brought us to the playoffs. Then well, after he got let go, the team was at a certain stage and went on and won 60 games and over 50. They were a really good team. They were up there. I think they made the um, Eastern Conference Finals t once or twice. But it wasn't under him. He had them when they were just put together. So I've always felt bad about that, and I've told Isaiah that. Uh, because I really do think that he would... And, and anything they say that's positive about him, I would agree with that. This team uh, coming up this season, and it, we need Miles Turner and guys like Domas Sabonis to develop. How good are you at projecting a guy, both personality-wise and physically, what kind of a player they're going to be? Like, those guys are 22, what they're going to be at 25, 27, that kind of thing. Well, I think that um, the guys I would compare them with, and not exactly their games, but the impact they can have. Um, I think that both Miles and Sabonis are going to be like the Davis brothers. In other words, and they were really, I remember when we got them in the summer, because uh, Tony came here later than Dale. He went to Europe and then came here. And so they were playing like out here right now. And Chuck Person was out there, and he, I had traded him. But he used to come and play in the summers. And he came and said, you're going to have a really good team this year, Donnie. I said, really? What do you think? Why, Chuck? And he goes, nobody's got two guys like that. Really? Yeah. He said, they can block shots. They're around the rim. He said, nobody in the league's got two guys like that. So I think you're going to have a hell of a team. And that's how I feel about Sabonis and Turner, that they're different, all right? But they're so talented, and Sabonis has got that kind of real toughness around the basket. Miles is is finding his way now. He he's a guy that can play on the outside, and as he gets older and and more, you know, and gets more adept at playing inside, uh, he's going to be a real problem for people. Plus, he's a real shot blocker. Is is you've managed. How difficult has it been for you? Like you talk about your personal affection for a guy like Isaiah, but you got to fire him. Uh, there are other players, guys will become free agents, and you got to make a determination. All right, we're not going to overspend on this guy. We got to get pragmatic. How difficult is it for you to separate the pragmatic from your emotions? I mean, it causes you pain. Yeah. All right. You know, because but you're that's all when you're doing it by yourself. The fact is, you have to do that. And it's the thing I dreaded the most the entire time I've been in this job is that I had to make a decision to either let a coach go or a player go. And that's not just, you know, a lamentation that I'm making because it sounds good. It's truthfully painful. 
because you work so closely with both players and with coaches. And you know yourself, it isn't all his fault. Half the time, it would have been something I didn't do, right? So, you know, it's painful. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. I, I couldn't be more appreciative. Thanks so much. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.